Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour for a special holiday edition. Now, our pal Alex Dean is on festive assignment. We'll be doing our one-year anniversary episode, and in February, our first live show from London, ably holding down the fort with me today is special guest co-host and fan favorite, Nir Yarden. You'll recall we told the story of Nir's father's harrowing and heroic escapes during World War II at our live show in New York City. And I think, Nir, you would describe yourself as, does Alex, as an enthusiastic amateur historian. Am I right? Correct. Yeah, and you have definitely schooled me on the Middle East, where I just returned from a 10-day visit, as will be apparent momentarily. And so I couldn't think of anyone better to help us out with today's story. So, Nir, welcome back to the podcast. Happy Hanukkah, and thanks for guest co-hosting. Thank you, brother, and a happy holidays to all your listeners, all your guests. You told me to bring a drink. And I have one lined up for the festivities. And Merry Christmas to everybody and Happy Hanukkah and all the best wishes. Nothing says Happy Kwanzaa like an IPA. <laughs> I, for, for my part, I am enjoying, uh, because of the central uh, park near that uh, wine place in both of our faiths, I'm enjoying some Dow, one of my very favorite wines from uh, Paso Robles, California. It's a cuvee. Cuvée Lizzie, in fact, named after my my favorite 70s band, Thin Lizzie. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Fill the, in booze, it. the booze mm -hmm. is back in town. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm drinking from a tall boy, a 19-ounce can. And, and mm -hmm. when I was growing up, whenever I saw somebody drinking, it was usually some guy on Skid Row out of a paper bag. Until I got older, then I started to drink it. So, salute to you. Thank you very much for having me on. And to you. Welcome, cheers, and for you kids out there who don't know what Skid Row is, a lot has happened in between. It's now known as Portland. <laughs> and parts of LA. For all my friends in Portland, I'm just kidding. It's a joke. So, By the way, can I just say one thing? Yes, please. And this is the first time I experienced this. To show you how bad the shoplifting retail situation has gotten, really across the United States, but particularly here in New York, you now get, I just bought a can of beer they are now slapping a paid sticker on your can of beer when you walk out the door. Kind of new. Well, I knew it was getting bad when like deodorant is put behind locked glass. <laughs> right, exactly. In the downtown, exactly. in the downtown yeah. uh, drugstores. So as I mentioned there, I just got back from really quite a magical, meaningful 10-day uh, trip to the Holy Land. My first time I was with an amazing group of international scholars, and we still managed to have fun nonetheless. Um, <laughs> And so I've got a series of new stories that I'm going to tell uh, over time that are based directly on my own observations during that trip. Now, Nir, you're in for a historic first here on the Hidden History Happy Hour. As you may know, I've contributed a few original stories to uh, both our podcast and Alex's uh, new book, cleverly titled More Lessons from History. I like it. Yeah, because Lessons from History Miami Takedown was already taken, I guess. Um, but I have never contributed a story based really on my own direct uh, observations. And so I'm trying it. This is the first time. And a note for our fans, Alex has not reviewed this story at all. 
So you, the fans, and Alex are hearing this together for the first time. So if you hate it, it's not Alex's fault. It's entirely my fault. On the other hand, if you love it, he gets no credit <laughs> at all. And I should note, as we're recording this, our, our uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa I think, episode. I think some marriages work that way, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right, yeah. Uh, I should note, just as we're recording this, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu just today announced he's forming a new government coalition in Israel. So I guess keep that in the back of your mind. As I tell you the story, Nir and our fans out there, of the ghosts of Amona. Amona is, or was, and perhaps will be again, a community of second-generation Israeli Jewish settlers. It sits high on a hill above the much larger town of Ofra in the West Bank of what is, depending on your politics and beliefs, Israel or Palestine or both, or not quite either. Hidden History Happy Hour is not taking sides in this seemingly timeless argument, and that is not this story. This is the story of the 40-plus families living in Amona in 2013. Now today, as I just witnessed a couple of weeks ago, Amona is a ghost town, less of a ghost town, less than a ghost town, really, as all that remains of the family homes are surprisingly well-tended fig trees, a few plants and grass, and more on this later, and a couple of roads quickly being overtaken by weeds. Oh, and that view. Amona sits high on a hill, surrounded by scattered pine trees and rolling hills, and when we first saw the valley, it was bathed in a pinkish golden light that made the hills and the settlements almost seem to glow. And this was right around sunset in early December 2022. Now, as you know, people of all religions and of no religion at all often come back from a first view visit to the Holy Land saying they were moved in ways they can't quite explain. I know I was multiple times, some of which I'll tell about in future episodes. In fact, I would say this was one of the few times since the birth of my daughters I found the word awe appropriate. Now, Nir, I should stop here and tell the kids out there, not awesome, not awesome kids, just awe, look it up. Yeah. Yeah. So this story is about the once and perhaps future town of Amona, and more specifically, it is about Amona's ghosts. To understand Amona's story, you first have to know about Ofra, the thriving village Amona was intended to protect. To say that this settlement sits on hallowed ground is an understatement, and it is both a lightning rod and a potential future powder keg in the simmering and occasionally boiling over conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Sitting within biblical Judea and Samaria, better known today as the West Bank, Ofra is named after a town mentioned in the book of Joshua. You probably know this, Unir, uh, I did not. Ofra is located on the road between Jerusalem and Nablus. The town comprised of attractive white red-roofed homes and including a community center and a youth club was established in 1975 following the Yom Kippur War as part of the controversial Israeli settlement movement. As you know, many international lawyers consider uh, the controversial Israeli settlements all illegal in occupied territories in the West Bank under the Fourth Geneva Convention, which prohibits an occupying power from inserting its own civilians into occupied territory. And yes, I'm looking at you, Vladimir Putin, and I'm looking at the Donbass region. Uh, that is the portion that the Ukrainians already haven't taken back from the, uh, from the invaders. Now, successive Israeli governments, on the other hand, counter that Ofra and the other West Bank Jewish settlements are legal, arguing that the West Bank is actually not occupied territory under Geneva or any other provision of international law. Ofra was officially recognized as a community by the Israeli government in 1977, but has been the subject of numerous court fights ever since. 
Several of Afra residents, unfortunately, are amongst the more than 1,000 people killed by what Israeli uh, government calls Palestinian terror and violence since 2000. Palestinians, of course, had died at Israeli hands as well. Afra residents even have occasionally traded fire with the Israeli Defense Forces. In fact, shots were fired outside an IDF outpost near Afra just weeks before my visit. Again, we're not taking sides in this dispute. What is not in dispute, however, is how the several generations of settlers see this land. To them, it is holy. At sunset on a beautiful dusky early evening recently, I was privileged to join a small group of international scholars on a private tour of Afra and Amona, led by a quiet but proud settler and mom who spoke with dignity and reverence as she told us her story. She and her husband bought a home in Afra when she was nine months pregnant with their first child, not out of any sense of religion and without political agenda, simply because they could not afford to be in a nicer neighborhood. Gradually, she says, as her family lived with the land and came to understand the deep biblical significance of the hills and valleys surrounding their new home, it became more and more of a religious mission for them. And in describing this area, the woman pointed out the hill on the other side of the valley from Amona, today topped by a radar dome and cell towers, as the location where God told Abraham the Jews were receiving the promised land. Now, how's that for a landmark? You know, you're driving down the road asking for directions. Oh, yeah, right over there where God gave us the promised land. Right. Asked how she knew this. She read from what she believed, and I guess scholars believe, to be Abraham's private diary in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which does pretty accurately describe exactly what we were looking at. Now, near any idea why the settlers in Ofra would have built a second settlement high on the hill above them instead of just expanding outward? I would only say for defense reasons, but that may be too practical. Nope, you're you're exactly right. This is them worried that in the future, rocket attacks will be launched from the hills above them. Now, I don't think I've ever considered that while home shopping. I don't know if you have. <laughs> also, I know that you haven't home shopped since like 1994. So. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. So a lot of apartment shopping, no home shopping. Yeah, and no no buying, just living in <laughs> just living, right, right? Yeah, no settlements for you. Uh, <laughs> now, according to a, a well-read online thesaurus near, the words "haunted" and "holy" are semantically related, and in its earliest known iteration, from the old French, as a matter of fact, the word "haunt" can mean to visit regularly. Amona was ruled illegal by the Israeli Supreme Court in 2014, and the buildings were finally bulldozed in 2017, their residents having been forcibly evicted by Israeli forces. But today, Amona is haunted by human beings who voluntarily come every Friday to pray and to water and to tend the fig trees and plants that used to surround their homes having no real idea as to whether the trees they tend will ever come back to them, whether they'll go to Palestinians they'll never meet or whether they'll be destroyed in a future war. It is therefore a deep act of reverence and in the end, hope. Like so many individual acts of hope, irrational or not, taken on both sides of this terrible conflict in this holy region every day. For these, as it turns out, are the friendly ghosts of Amona. Now, I know that has way too much sentimentality for your hard-bitten taste, but it's a good story, no? Especially on Christmas Eve, the holiday yes. spirit. Yeah, it's a holiday Absolutely. miracle. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So now I know you've spent a lot more time uh, in the region than I have. Uh, what are your thoughts on settlement, on the issues, on, as you said before, national interest? What do you think about all that? Well, it's it's obviously you can approach it many different ways. I think the at the core of it, though, is appreciating, first of all, how small Israel is. So you talk about tripping over places yeah. for people who haven't visited Israel. You go to a place like Jerusalem, and your, your dad was a minister, right? Was, uh, was yes, a, Episcopal minister. Yeah, our church only exists because Henry VIII wanted a divorce, so I don't know. <laughs> anyway. But you go to a place like Jerusalem, and the first thing that immediately jumps out at me, anyway, is how compressed everything is, and, and so immediately the issues associated with people rubbing against each other and security and issues like that come into play, um, and then how do you actually separate the people out? very difficult. Um, the issue with respect to the West Bank is deeply embedded from an Israeli perspective on Jewish history, biblical history, as you said rightly, yeah. the connection from 2,600 years ago. It's connected to the fact that they interpret the West Bank as having never been occupied by Palestinians. This notion that it's a Palestinian area is false. Historically, they wanted against Jordan in 67. It was never recognized before then as a Palestinian enclave. And then obviously the flip side is you have Palestinians with their national aspirations as well. How you make that work practically is incredibly difficult um, and intractable. And in many respects, um, one of the things that my interpretation of it is, is that um, the West Bank is used oftentimes for, from an Israeli perspective, for national security purposes, for negotiation purposes in the international realm, definitely driven by religious uh, uh, aspirations, um, and, and never really an ability to sort of take the people apart. You've got these three different sectors, which are ruled in different, A, B, and C, uh, ruled by Palestinians in A and, and sort of a mix in one and then in C it's the Israeli areas. And, and so and, and as you say, right up against each other. It would be like I, I might I might live in a zone that is completely controlled by the Israeli security forces and almost right across the street, right. not quite, but very close is one that's not controlled at all by any security forces. Yeah, that's exactly right. And even in, in Israel proper. So I have a stepbrother who lives north of Tel Aviv and he, and he has a a balcony and you go on that balcony and you look to the left and it's this beautiful Mediterranean, right? In Tel Aviv. And you look to the right and you see these lights on these hills and you think to yourself, well, that must be a town in Israel or something. It's the West Bank. At its narrow scope, Israel is 32 miles. The width of Israel is 32 miles. So how you actually manage the security issue is something no one's ever really been successfully been able to address. Now there are different formulations that have come around in terms of previous peace discussions, Clinton trying to introduce international troops into the West Bank, trying to separate the people out. But it's it's virtually impossible um, to do that. And, and certainly from an Israeli perspective, there's absolutely zero trust that that type of formulation is going to work. So it's an intractable problem. Um, but within the scope of the Middle East itself, the cost and the human suffering um, when you compare it to other conflicts, has been somewhat tempered. 
Um, I know in the press, we read a lot about Israel constantly. It was a daily diet of information. When you look at it historically, the conflict, and, and don't quote me on this number, but I think over the entire existence of Israel's existence, something like 75,000 people have died between Israel and the Palestinians. It might even be lower than, less than that, actually. You mean, you're talking about since before 47, right? Well, from the founding of Israel, from the yeah. founding of Israel on. Yeah, you know, 80, you, year, 80 years. Yeah. yeah, if you look at the conflict in Syria, just in the last 10 years, 500,000 people are dead. Mm -hmm. In Yemen, 250,000 people are dead. Um, and so it, it's, it's this constant conflict and we could go in a lot of different directions on it. But I still haven't heard any practical solution to make it work. And, and that's kind of the tragedy associated with this. There really are two people that should be separate, um, certainly in the West Bank. But how you implement a practical solution that meets the Palestinian national aspirations and at the same time meets Israel's security, it's really an intractable problem. I, I'd love to hear thoughts. One thing that was so interesting on this trip is we met with Palestinians, we met with Israeli officials, we met with settlers. We met with different flavors of each because, you know, these are all layers more complex than than we're describing it. And in the United States, at least in my experience in the national security community, usually you're always talking about the so-called two-state solution, where right. there will be one homeland for the Jewish people separate from another homeland for the Palestinian people. And, you know, West Wing episodes are based on it. This right. is what the Camp David talks were about. I got to tell you. Almost everybody we talk to in Israel on any side believes the two-state solution is dead, that there is going to have to be some sort of one-state solution where the collective and individual rights of all the various constituents are, are worked out. Now, it could be de facto segregation, and it probably will be, just like, you know, e even after... Brown versus Board of Education, and even after we did busing and we did all the integration things, still a lot of nationalities just live with their people. Uh, and, and that's what I think most of the people we talk to think is going to happen, including, by the way, young Palestinians. Their, their view is, you know, just like my daughters and probably your sons, the last generations have completely fucked everything up. And we don't really care how you guys talked about it. We just want to, you know, live safely uh, with economic success. So I don't know. It's a very different view than what you get when you're sitting here in the United States, in the academy especially. Yeah, I, I the issue about the two-state solution has hit a wall, but I don't believe it's going down the one-state solution, simply because Israel can't lose its Jewish identity and sort of absorbing however many Palestinians in the West Bank into Israel will go a long way to doing that. And so they will constantly push towards some sort of a settlement or some sort of solution that sort of somehow uh, keeps Palestinians outside of Israel proper, if you will, uh, and doesn't count towards a one-state solution. It's, it's just not workable within Israel. Now, I, again, you were speaking to some people, security, maybe there's a different spin to it. But I'd be very surprised if Israel ever accepts a, a solution that says to them, you now have to absorb all these people in the West Bank as citizens in Israel. It, it just would demographically change the nature of Israel as a Jewish society. And at the core, that's really what drives Israel, right? And that's, yeah. that's the Jewish identity. Yeah, the, 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 the shorthand formulation is you can have a Jewish state or a democratic state, but you cannot have both. 
and, and, but, but there's ways around that, right? Like you can have proportional voting, you can have individual rights that are, that are enshrined in a, in a bill of rights that can't be changed. All I can tell you is there is no enthusiasm for a two-state solution in the way that all of our presidents have always talked about it. Now, like I said, there's ways you could, you could arrange the voting. There's ways you could have a de facto separation of people. Uh, but but the idea that they're going to, you know, carve up the land and make one Palestine and one Israel right now, at least that's not being talked about very much. Yeah. But, you know, things turn in the Middle East, depending on the incentives mm -hmm. and what the situation is. You're going to have to get to a place. My belief is through all our experience in negotiation and stuff is there will be some form of a Palestinian state. I don't think realistically, even a guy like Bibi Netanyahu doesn't think that's going to occur at some point. What that looks like, though, and what the contours of that is really up for debate and argument. From an Israeli perspective, my sense is it's going to be something like, and, and you know, for your British viewers, they'll know this very well. You don't have to look far. Look at a situation like an Andorra or a Liechtenstein. Uh, I actually spent 10 days in Vaduz, by the way, which is like nine days more than anybody else. But you think about a Liechtenstein. Uh, hold on for wait, 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 hold, hold on for a second. Yeah. What is the name of that town you just threw out? Vaduz, Vaduz, Liechtenstein. I actually got the country rated on behalf of the prince and his bank. Don't don't ask. But that is literally nine days more than anybody else has spent in Liechtenstein because Liechtenstein used to be the place they used to come with bags of money, yeah. drop it off, and then go to your ski chalet somewhere yeah. else in Switzerland, right? Yeah. But it, but the political formula is it's an independent state. It's completely demilitarized. It's effectively it's another Swiss canton. Yeah. And 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 that's at the core of the issue is how that demilitarized aspect is really an intractable problem in the West Bank because who's going to monitor that situation that rockets don't get fired into Tel Aviv? I mean, in Gaza is the perfect example. How do you how do you ensure that, for example, Hamas doesn't take over the West Bank? To your point, and, and it was a good one earlier about the tremendous um, dissatisfaction that young Palestinians have in the West Bank. It's a really it's it's historically been a very corrupt regime over there. I mean, they get a lot of international aid, a lot of U.S. aid, um, and a lot of the segments of society haven't seen the benefit of that. Well, not to mention they haven't they haven't had elections since two thousand six, right? Right. And in the meantime, you've got these popular movements like Hamas, and now this new Lions Den. You know, they kind of pop up every once in a while, who basically are about Israel's destruction. They don't recognize Israel. They don't recognize the Jewish state. And so as that becomes more and more of a force, and with, by the way, with a lot of pressure coming in from the outside, right? I mean, those are funded by Iran and, and other players in the Middle East. How do you ensure that that doesn't turn into Gaza once you once you sort of pull out? So the, yeah. that aspect is, is one that the international community has yet to really um, articulate a solution to. They, they came close with Clinton. At the end, it wasn't satisfactory for the Palestinians. Maybe they can do it again. Yeah. Well, it's. I suppose the bad news is that I think we certainly agree that the conflict isn't going to get resolved anytime soon. Good news is, could be worse. You know, you could have tanks rolling across an entire country and just annexing things at will. Um, and I should, right, also, exactly. Exactly. I should also note that um, that as we're recording this today, uh, yesterday. Uh, uh, President Zelensky appeared in, in front of the United States Congress to quite the uh, right. 
rousing Churchillian uh, type review. So, uh, you know, Slava Ukraine, I say. Absolutely. Salute. By the way, uh, interestingly, I picked up on the wire today. I don't know if you saw it. Bibi Netanyahu got a congratulatory call from Vladimir Putin. And you'd mentioned Netanyahu before. Whether you agree with him or not, one of the, I believe, one of the sort of indispensable guys on the world stage seems to come back. I mean, his career spans from 82 or 1983 till now. He's been front and center to everything going on in Israel and, and a lot of the developments globally. Uh, and I thought to myself, who else on the world stage has that longevity? And the only guy I could come up with is Burns at the CIA. I think, you know, around 86, 87 sort of made his way up the State Department. So you think about the role of Israel generally from a geopolitical perspective, and particularly a guy like Netanyahu connecting the East and the West, for lack of a better term, the channel into a guy like Putin and stuff like that. He sort of plays an important role, I think, um, on the global stage. And it's just interesting. The third, I think, yeah, third time. I haven't done the math, but at this point, he ha he'll he have to, by the end of this term, however long that lasts, he'll have to be the longest serving Israeli I think he, leader, yeah, right? I think he already has been. Yeah. He already has been. And, and, and again, this is not to say you should agree with them or not agree with the politics. A real force in terms of developments in the Middle East, right? So a lot of his views have come into play just based on his sheer will, if you want to call it that, right? He well, opposed the Iran deal. Eventually, the United States backed out of it. He um, he always argued that the Palestinian issue shouldn't be front and center to global actions. In the and now East you have the Abraham Accords. Yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly. yeah, it, you know, it's funny because we Americans like to think that um, we generally are exporters of good government ideas rather than importers. Uh, but in this case, you know, clearly we have now stolen from Netanyahu the concept that if you want to avoid your fraud and corruption trials, what you need to do is simply keep running for elected office. And then, uh, and then have bills voted in, you know, in the Congress as he's about to do, you know, maybe it'll help him out and stuff, you know what I mean? But that's yeah. welcome to Israel. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, I was involved in a court action in Israel and you talk about corrupt. I mean, it was, you know, it is what it is. It, it doesn't lose its Middle East character in some respects, right? As advanced as it is and as Western as it is. So, yeah. you know, welcome to Israel, right? It's a, it's a noisy place. Yeah. But it's going to be, I mean, it's 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 going to be a very interesting time because I think that with this, let's call it right-wing government coming in, um, the implications, not just within Israel, kind of on a broader framework in terms of the Russians sitting in Syria and Ukraine and stuff like that, are all going to be sort of revisited. Um given the last government. And what's interesting well, is how Lapp had lost. He wasn't even, you know, nobody really trusted him and he lost pretty badly in the election. Well, I was I was being a little flip before uh, with my comparison to Russia and Ukraine, but they're not at all disconnected, right? Because um, all the weapons that Russia was sending to Syria and probably, you know, through Hezbollah and others to, to, to the more radical forces, they're now like, begging Iran and Syria to sell well, yeah. weapons because yeah. they don't have any. So so they're not yeah. exporting that stuff anymore. And right. even though the United States made this kind of disastrous trade for uh, Victor Boot, uh, an, a notorious arms dealer who I spent part of my career chasing around, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? Um, and wow. he's actually much worse than than what he's how he's been portrayed. Yeah. But even he 
can't do anything if there's no weapons to be had, right? right. I mean, they, they're literally finding um, balkanized American parts in Ukrainian drones being flown by the Russians over uh, Ukraine now. It's, it's like, apparently you can exhaust all the world's weapons supply. Right. No one right. thought so, but I guess you can. And I, I guess they're turning to North Korea now. And yeah. Burns was oh, yeah. out. What did Burns say a few days ago? He made some speech talking about the threat that the you know Vladimir Putin has brought Iran in on this war, basically, and, and now they're fighting essentially on the Russian side. Yeah. Um, and, and now Belarus is threatening, you know, in the north. And so yeah. it's it's um and, and for our for our uh, non- intelligence aficionado fans uh, bill burns is currently the u.s uh, director of the cia but he's been a career diplomat for as new as near suggests uh, as long as i've been long, adult. right since 86 uh, or something and i and i actually think the one guy that the kremlin in within this administration maybe the one guy in washington forget republican and democrats but the one guy that actually can pick up the phone and speak they speak one-on-one -on -one and sort of respect the guy and back and forth i I think he was he was ambassador to Russia. Oh yeah, back in the nineties as well. He's worn a lot of different hats, but sort of, I view him as sort of Washington's indispensable man, right? In terms of what's going on um, currently. So, you know, he's talking about what's going on with Iran and stuff. And so, the, getting back to the topic and what we're discussing is yes, please. Well, you know, how do you <laughs> how, how do you stop right from an Israeli perspective? Uh, what is a lot of um, Iranian-backed arms weapon flowing in, agitation, backing Hamas, it's Hezbollah and Hamas and the like, right. and then say, well, you need to strike peace with a group of people that will, if you use Gaza as an example, will shoot 10,000 rockets into, into your place. And nobody has really come up with a solution for that. And that's kind of the tragedy of the situation. Yeah. Well, we, we were, one of the stories we were told was about, and I haven't researched this, but I have no reason to doubt it, how in Lebanon, the Lebanese government is so completely infiltrated and controlled now by Hezbollah. By the way, that's a real deep state. You know, you talk about the deep right. state, they really have one. That Hezbollah will just roll into somebody's garage, you know, their home, and they'll knock on the door and they'll say, hey, we'd love to store some stuff in your garage. And you not only do you not say no, you don't even ask them what it is. It could be a rocket launcher, right. it could be chemical, whatever. You just like open your garage door because, first of all, you're scared. But more than that, they are so now co-branded with the government in terms of providing social services sure. Sure. and welfare and all that stuff that they're, it's like, yes, it's almost like a patriotic right. thing. Right. Well, didn't they store, what was the blast in Beirut by the port where they, all the nitrate ammonia? for bombs yeah. and they kept yeah. it in a warehouse and basically blew half of Beirut down. I mean, it was well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not vouching for their trade craft. I'm just talking <laughs> about it's lethal enough. Services. It's lethal enough. Okay. So near to summarize, uh, the situation in the middle East is hopeless, but also nothing new. It isn't hopeless. Never lose hope. All right. Well, I like, but, to but I will it. say, I will say sometimes a state of, in action, if you want to call it that, I don't know what label you want to do, is better than the alternatives. And this, it, at least from an Israeli perspective, as bad as it is, it could get much worse.
Yeah. Well, sometime down the road, Nir, we'll have you back to talk about one of your great heroes, Ronald Reagan. And I mentioned that because one of his uh, famous quotes is quite apt here uh, in terms of the value of inaction. He once said, um, well, people say I don't appreciate the Constitution and the First Amendment. I love the First Amendment. I love the part where it says Congress shall make no law. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for this special holiday episode of the Hidden History Happy Hour. Near Yarden, thank you so much for coming, Bard. My Thanks, friend. Brian. Cheers. Salute. Thank you so much to all of our fantastic listeners and viewers for letting us do these first 40 episodes. Near, welcome to episode 40. It's a milestone. We look forward to Congrats. many more. Thank you. We look forward to many more with all of you. And meanwhile, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star review if you're so moved. And tell your friends. And of course... When you return your unwanted gifts this year, you can use your refund to buy the combo of both of Alex's books, the original Lessons from History on which this podcast is based, and the incredibly brilliantly titled More Lessons from History, Volume 2. They make a great combo. Just one more bit of business I wanted to uh, return to our uh, earlier episode. As some of our listeners will know, I watched uh, Die Hard on my flight back from the Holy Land just to check Alex's unbending view that Die Hard is the best Christmas movie of all time. Well, here's my verdict. Die Hard is undoubtedly one of the great action movies of all time. And paradoxically, it's one of the most romantic movies of all time. And after a fashion, Die Hard is a Christmas movie, but it is not, in my humble opinion, the best Christmas movie of all time. That honor remains now and forever with It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, no way. No Follow way. Follow closely. Wait till you hear my second I'm story. with you, Alex. Follow <laughs> closely by Will Ferrell's Elf. <laughs> <laughs> Brian obviously has been tipping a little too much, uh, you know, booze tonight. Are you kidding me? Alex is right. He's All right. I'll give you the final word as wrong as it is. Cheers, everybody. <laughs> Salute. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well history. Cheers.